If this letter of James that had arrived uh, through our door and fallen on the doormat, we may well have wanted it to return, uh, uh, put a, a message on it saying, return to sender. It's not quite clear who it's to, an individual or a church in a place, and it's not quite clear who it's from. Uh, yes, it's from James, but there are a number of James, uh, that, or Jameses, or James that we find in the scriptures. But the one thing that we do know tonight is that it's a letter from God. It's God's word to us. It's a letter from God, and it's a letter for us, each one of us here, and that it has plenty to say. It's a very fast-moving book, full of pictures, and uh, it's vivid and lively. Uh, it speaks of the, uh, the rich as being like wild flowers and withering plants. It speaks about the tongue, that little thing in our mouth that we speak with, about being like a, a rudder or, of a ship or a raging fire. It's very direct and challenging. It doesn't mince its words. Don't show favouritism. Watch out how you use your tongue. Don't be deceived. Humble yourselves. There's a lot of very direct challenges. And it's very practical. It addresses real issues that we face. In chapter 1, trials and suffering. They're realities of life in which we, the, the, the lives that we live. Uh, uh, chapter 3, the, the use of our tongues. That little thing in our mouth but just seems to keep putting its foot in it. And then we come to this chapter 4 and it starts off uh, asking this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Very practical, very direct. And uh, as we look at this, uh, these verses together tonight, I want us to think about that quarrelsome spirit that we have within us. And every one of us here, I'm sure, identifies with that as we know what we can be like, that quarrelsome spirit that is within us. And James, as he writes, he's not writing to that world out there. And when we think about a quarrelsome spirit, we only have to turn the radio on and listen to Parliament to see something of like that. But he's not speaking to those out there in the world around us. He's speaking to those in here, in the church. He's not speaking to those who aren't Christians. He's speaking to those who are Christians. And we need to understand that we're in a war. We're in a, a battle. The Christians involved in a continual and irreconcilable war. The grace that reconciles us to God antagonizes the evil one, the devil, against us. We do battle with God. We resist him. We don't want his rule over him. Oh yes, we say we want it, but yet within our hearts we find that we want to resist that. We do battle with each other and quarrels arise. It's exactly what James says, what causes them, but he goes on and says, verse 2, there in the middle of verse 2, you quarrel and you fight. Paul says the same to the church at Corinth. He said, there is jealousy and quarrelling amongst you. And, and uh, James asks this question, where does it come from? What causes it? Why does it happen? We get irritated, we argue, 
we fall out with each other and we're all guilty of that. Maybe we can, as we sit here, we're just very aware of that. And even with those closest to us, we quarrel with our husbands or with our wives, with our parents or with our children. There's a quarrelsome spirit within us. And Paul addresses this question of where does it come from? What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he goes on to answer that question and he goes on to offer the solution to the quarrelsome spirit within us. So I've got three points tonight. You'll see them there on the sheet. The problem, the solution and the result. The problem, the solution and the result. Firstly, the problem. We need a correct diagnosis of what the problem is. Many of you will be aware that Jan had uh, emergency eye surgery just a couple of weeks ago. She ended up with a detached retina. And we're very pleased that a right diagnosis was made. And uh, she ended up on the Monday morning just two weeks ago having emergency eye surgery. And when we got there, uh, the uh, ophthalmologist who we saw, he got a big black marker pen out and he put a big arrow on her head pointing to her eye. It's important that they got the correct diagnosis to, to, to deal with the problem and we're very thankful to, uh, for successful what seems to be successful surgery. The problem of the quarrelsome spirit. We need to understand where it comes from. We need a correct diagnos- uh, diagnosis. And then the solution. And as we go on you'll see that God is the one who provides the solution. But actually we have to respond to that as well. And then finally the result. What happens when we accept God's solution and do as we should? What happens then? So let's first of all think about the problem. We face three enemies. We're fighting a battle on three fronts and uh, often spoken about in the scriptures in different places and at different times and we find them all here in this uh, passage in these few verses that we read. The, the fronts of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world around us, which, which seems to have so much to offer. And there in verse 4, uh, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? The flesh. It's an old word, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the old nature that part of us inside which we cannot escape from. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? And then the devil, the enemy of God, Satan, with all his attractive propositions to woo us away from Jesus. And we're told to resist him. We might think as we think about the three enemies that surely if we're to to run away from the world and go and hide ourselves away that we'd be alright. But even if we shut ourselves away from that world out there we still have that old nature within us that leads us astray. You see the problem is within. The problem is the that flesh, that that sinful nature, that part in us that follows us everywhere that we cannot escape from and will follow us all the way through our lives until that day that we die. We face a, a daily battle. Every one of us here faces a battle with that old nature 
within. The first chapter in James speaks about the trials and temptations and that old nature within us that, that, that is tempted by those things. Three enemies that we face. Two of them may sound external, the world and the devil, but the flesh, that sinful nature that each one of us has, which so often comes out in that quarrelsome spirit and expresses itself in different ways. The problem is within us. And James summarises it in these first five verses and uh, really there's two points that he makes. Firstly, he says, verses 1 to 3, it's the problem of our conflicting passions. The problem of our conflicting passions. Listen to what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's really summed up in that first verse. Where do they come from? They come from those desires, your desires, that battle within. And uh, as I've looked at this, I'm not sure it's talking about good desires and bad desires and there's a battle going on between them. That word desires, it it seems to be a negative word, speaking of that old nature, speaking of sensual pleasures, as it were, speaking of that old nature. And the Bible constantly tells us that the the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jeremiah 17:9 tells us that the, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, it's not politically correct to say that today, is it? But it's true. We don't really like to admit it that that's our problem within, but it is. And we're very aware of that. The desires that battle within. And then the second verse goes on to speak about the same thing. And let me, let me put it in a slightly different way, as it were. You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot get, so you fight. And maybe we sit here tonight and think, well, I've never killed anyone. I wouldn't do that. And I don't fight. Maybe some of us have at times. We might not kill with our hands, But what about with our eyes? You know that old saying, don't you, if looks could kill. And have we looked at people as if to kill and wishing that they were dead? We might not fight with our fists, but what about with our words? We fight with them. And he goes on, even even when we pray we get it wrong. That's what verse 3 seems to be saying. Uh, We pray with wrong motives. The first half of verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. We pray with selfish motives. Look at what it says in the second half of the verse. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. It seems to be saying the problem we have, which comes from that problem within our hearts, is wrong motives and selfish motives which come from that sinful nature within our hearts. It's this problem of conflicting passions. 
Now when we repent and turn from our sin and trust in Christ, our status is changed. We become, uh, he becomes our saviour and we become his friend. Sin's status is altered. It no more has dominion over us. But sin is not eradicated. It's still lurking there. Sin no longer reigns, but yet it still remains. And we know that when we look within our hearts, we're often very aware of that. The problem of conflicting passions, but then uh, he goes on as well to talk about the problem of divided affections. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? They're strong words. That is strong language. You adulterous people. We wouldn't dare say that to anyone. But yet that is what God's word said to, says to us here. You adulterous people. And it's not speaking of the sin of adultery, which we uh, know of, but it's using that Old Testament language. Israel were often spoke about being adulterous people because they were pursuing other things apart from God. God was not the, uh, the, the ultimate object of their worship, as it were. They were pursuing other things and turning from him. And the problem we face today is that we're susceptible of the same things. We're susceptible of spiritual adultery. We're united with Christ. We're adopted into his family. We're, as it were, woven into the Godhead. But yet still we go after other pleasures. We do things that oppose him. We're involved in activities which don't honour him. We have that sinful nature within us. We have these divided affections. And he goes on to tell us that God is jealous. It's a right jealousy. Verse 5. Do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely You see, God longs by his spirit with a passionate jealousy that we might be his and his alone. That's the jealousy it's speaking about, that we would be his and his alone. No wife would want her husband to have attractions towards uh, other women. No husband would want his wife to be... to have her gaze drawn towards other men. But these reasons for the fights and quarrels that we have within us are these conflicting passions and our divided affections. You see, the problem isn't out there. It doesn't begin when we walk out of the door and face up to that world out there and what's happening out there. The problem is in here. The problem is at the fault of others because of what they do, as we often think it is. It's our fault. The problem is within our hearts. 
And James addresses earlier on in the book uh, uh, another point that he makes. It's not God's fault. It's not his problem. Because in James chapter 1, have a look at what he says. James chapter 1 and verse 14. Well, look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's not God's fault. It's not the fault of others. The problem lies within. And every one of us faces a daily battle. As we go out into the week, we face a a daily battle with this old nature that we have within. And this old nature wants to uh, cause us to stumble and it has its different ways of going about it as the devil is still at work with his limited power. But yet the scriptures tell us that victory is possible. Does that encourage you? That victory is possible. John writing in one of his letters, he says, the one that is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Victory is possible. And let's go on and think about the solution of that uh, tonight, here from this passage. When I was uh, thinking about this problem of the quarrelsome spirit, the uh, the Sound of Music came to my mind, and uh, that first, I think it's the first song in The Sound of Music. How do you solve a problem like Maria? And it goes on and talks about all her problems, as it were. But how do we solve the problem of a quarrelsome spirit? How do we solve that problem? How do we deal with that? I think it's quite interesting that the Bible seems to have more to say about avoiding the problem than it does to. Uh, uh, to say about what to do to resolve the problem when it occurs. Where's the solution? Did you spot it in this passage? Did you see it? It's there in verse 6. These words. But he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. The solution is from God. The solution is from is God's grace. The solution isn't from within, it's from without. This grace is the gift that he gives. It's not a work that we do. It's God's grace that deals with this problem of the quarrelsome nature. But it goes on because there are conditions attached to God's grace. We don't normally hear that said from a pulpit, do we, that there's conditions attached attached to God's grace. But when you look at this passage, there are conditions attached. We cannot presume upon God's grace. We mustn't just think that, well, we just sit back and God will do it. He'll do something to us and he'll make it happen and he'll resolve it. There are conditions. And James goes on to talk about them. What are these conditions? And this is where the challenge is for us tonight. This is where it requires action on our behalf. You see, there isn't just something here to believe. There's something here for us to do. It requires action tonight, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and the next day, 
and all the way through to the end of our lives. We face a daily battle, a battle with the old nature, but it is a battle that we can win because God has given his grace. So let's go on and think about the conditions that are attached to it and what we must do tonight or continue to do. Firstly, it begins with humble submission to God. It begins with humble submission to God. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. And that quote there, which appears in the book of 1 Peter as well, is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. It begins with humble submission to God. God hates the sin of pride. And throughout God's word, we're warned about the sin of pride. Jesus exposed that sin of pride in the Pharisees. Do you remember those Pharisees and uh, the parables that he told and the, the Pharisee who's there, I thank you that I'm not like that man. And do you know, our, our problem is we look at those Pharisees and we say, I thank you that I'm not like those Pharisees. But actually the Pharisees are there to show us what we are like. I think that's the reason they're scriptures, to show us what our, our natural hearts are like. Our pr- pride causes us to turn from God. But our pride causes him to turn from us. God opposes the proud. That's a frightening thought. I remember when I was preaching through 1 Peter, which I did before the book of James. Uh, You have the same thing in there, the same quote from uh, uh, Proverbs 3. And uh, again, it said, God opposes the proud. It's a frightening thing to think that it's possible, and I said exactly the same in 1 Peter, it is possible to get out of bed in the morning, tomorrow morning, and for God to be against you through the day. I hope that frightens you. It frightens me to think that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you see the condition there? He gives grace to the humble. When we're humble, he gives us his grace, which is what we need to be changed, to deal with that sinful nature within us. And these following verses, verses 6 through to 10, they're, they're wrapped, as it were, in humility, because it begins with uh, uh, God giving his grace to the humble, and then in verse 10 it says there, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble submission. We're told to submit, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Now, if you're anything like me, it's a word that you don't like. Why should I? Do you have that reaction? Why, why should I? We, we don't like authorities. Why, why should I do what you tell me? Why should I do what they say? It's that sinful nature within, just getting in the way and, and reacting to it. But yet, God says that we need to humbly submit ourselves. It seems to me that James is addressing the believer who says that he submits to God and wants to submit to God, but actually he's not always doing it. 
It seems to be he's speaking to the to the to those who who say they love God and want to love God, but actually very often love themselves too, and are taken up with that. It seems to be addressed to those who who say I want to live by the Bible and by God's word, but but not in every area of my life, just just not in those parts. I just want to resist that. You see, the solution that God uh, tells us from his word to deal with this quarrelsome spirit within us is to humbly submit ourselves to him. Submission to God is the outworking of a humble heart. But notice something else here that it says as well. In verse 7, notice what it says. Submit yourselves to God. And Peter says the same in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves. We're told to do it. And as I've been thinking about this week, it made me realise, I think we need to be very careful about asking God to do it. To ask God to humble us It's a frightening thought. We're told here to humble ourselves. To ask God to do that, who knows what he might do? Well, we rest assured that he is a loving God and a God who is good and kind and compassionate and does all things well. But we need to think carefully about asking him to do that. But if we're not going to humble ourselves and we're not prepared to ask God to humble us, he might do it anyway. And that can be painful. Again, as I was thinking about this, I thought about Moses and remembered a sermon, or an outline of a sermon that I heard many, many years ago and that stuck with me. There was Moses, the one that God had raised up to deliver his people. And um, uh, he lived to, to 120 years. And the outline I heard was this. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody. I'm the person that God has raised up to lead these people out and trying to do it in his way. 40 years thinking that he was a somebody. The next 40 years, learning that he was a nobody. But then the next 40 years, seeing what God can do with a nobody. You see, God uses humble people. And he wants us to be humble before him. And he wants us to humble ourselves before him. Will you seek to do that in this coming week ahead? So firstly, we need to humbly submit ourselves to God. Secondly, it requires active resistance to the devil. It's there in verse 7. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Can we do that? With God's grace, we can. If we humbly submit ourselves with God's grace, because he gives his grace, we can. How do we submit? Firstly, we need to resist him humbly. Not by our own strength, but by admitting that we can't do it and we need God's help. By saying, I can't, but he can. We can only resist him humbly with the grace that God gives. In Ephesians 6, when uh, that great chapter about spiritual warfare Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Not strong in yourself, strong in the Lord and the might or his mighty power. 
Put on the armour of God. doesn't say put on your own armour. Put on the armour of God. It is in the Lord's strength. It is with his armour that we resist the devil. Resist him humbly. But then we can resist him confidently as well. Look at what it says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We can be confident. God's word tells us that if we resist him, if we seek to resist him with God's help, by his grace, humbly, that he will resist us. That that, that he will flee from us. And then, it doesn't tell us Uh, tell us here, but we need to resist him biblically as well. And if we think of Jesus when he was tempted, he went into the wilderness to be tempted and to face that temptation from the devil. How did Jesus resist the devil? Even when the devil quoted the word of God to him, he resisted him with the word of God, with a correct understanding of the word of God. And if we're going to resist the devil, we need to resist him biblically. And we need to resist him prayerfully. Do you remember Jesus when he was praying towards the end of his life in Gethsemane? What does he pray? Not my will, but yours. He's struggling, he's battling, he's resisting the devil. Prayerfully, not my will, but yours. And there's something that we can pray. Not my will, but yours. Not my way, but your way. Resist him humbly, Confidently, he will flee. Biblically and prayerfully. But it involves active resistance on our part. Are you ready for that action in these coming days ahead? Will you take action to resist him? So it involves humble submission to God. It requires active resistance to the devil. But then thirdly, it involves the intimate pursuit of God. The intimate pursuit of God. Look at what it says, verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. There's an intimacy. There's a pursuit of God. There's a desire for him. God invites his people to come near. The gospel itself is is a great invitation to come near. And that is the uniqueness of Christianity, that, that, that we can come near to God, that we can draw near to him. Very often when I speak to uh, Muslims about Islam, I say to them, your God is distant, and, and they know that, they understand that. And I make the point that God, uh, the God of the Bible, invites us to draw near, and that we can draw near through Christ. The intimate pursuit of God. Very often the scriptures speak about waiting on the Lord. They speak speak about seeking the Lord. About coming near to the Lord. I've been challenged to think this week that our Christian lives should be one of the continual, intimate pursuit of God. Do we do that? Are we like that? very easy to, yes, to to give him a nod, as it were, and acknowledge him, and to be caught up with serving him, rather that intimate pursuit of him. Again, as I was thinking about this just uh, this afternoon, it came to my mind um, 
the tent of meeting in the Old, uh, Old Testament in Exodus chapter 33 and Moses uh, set up this tent of meeting where, where he went and the people could go to, to draw near to God and he, he goes on one time and Joshua is there as well and it says that Moses left the tent but Joshua remained in the tent and if I'm right I think one of the older translations speaks of him lingering in the presence of God. We very often think about Joshua as being that, that mighty, um, courageous leader and a man of action, but yet as a young man, we find him lingering in the presence of God. Oh, that we would have that, that desire for God, that intimate pursuit of him, that heart that wants to linger in his presence. And if we're going to overcome that quarrelsome spirit, it comes from pursuing God. It will take time. It will take discipline. It needs cultivating. There's no shortcuts. The intimate pursuit of God. And it involves washing as well. The verse goes on. Uh, Have a look in the second half of verse 8. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And again, going back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the the washing of the hands and the washing as they came to the laver in the the court uh, is, is that figurative representation of the need for cleansing by God. It's not just an outward ritual, but it's a, a representation of, of what's going on within. That cleansing that uh, we need from God. It shows us that, that God is holy and that we are sinful and that we need cleansing. And when we deal with the sin that keeps us from God, by his grace, with his help, He draws near and he changes us. You see, this intimate pursuit of God, it means taking sin seriously. Verse 9 speaks of that. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It doesn't mean we go around being miserable all the time. But it does mean that we're serious and not just casual about meeting with God. And then as we do that, as we draw close to him, and he draws close to us, we experience a real joy and a deep joy. Psalm 16 that uh, says uh, at the end of that psalm, you will fill me with joy in your presence. And as we draw near to him, It's not the joy from out there and the laughter out there, but the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. We need that intimate pursuit of God. We need to think about how we approach him. I don't know if anyone here has been to meet the Queen, but if we were invited to Buckingham Palace, we'd think very carefully about how we go and very carefully about how we represent ourselves when going to meet the Queen. And so it is with God. We need to be serious about these things. So, 
The solution is God's grace. It's by God's grace that he helps us overcome this quarrelsome quarrelsome spirit within us. But there are conditions attached to it. Humble submission, active resistance and intimate pursuit. And the challenge to us from God's word for me and for you is this, is will our lives be characterised by these things this week? Will we be humbly submissive to God? Will we actively resist the devil? Will we intimately pursue him? And then finally, let's think about the result. What's the effect of all this? As we do these things, as we receive his grace as we do them, and as he works in us, what happens? What happens? There it is in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. We don't lift ourselves up. It's him who does it. And he wants to do it. He wants to bless us richly. We began our service uh, this evening or just uh, into our service when Phil came and read for us those verses from Philippians chapter 2. And isn't that what happened to Jesus? He humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. He resisted the devil. He humbled himself and then what happened? God exalted him. You see, it's all by God's grace. It's all what God does as he's at work in us by his grace. But it's also by our obedience. And as so often we find in the Bible, we find what God does, but we find what we must do as well. And as we obey, and as we seek to be the people that God wants us to be, as we obey his word and seek to do these things, God will give his grace. And as he gives his grace to us and changes us, that quarrelsome spirit will be quenched.